Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We are in the middle of day 6 of creation, and rather than going back through a fairly lengthy review, um, you can see where we've been in the sermon guide that's in your bulletin, and hopefully that provides enough of a connection to you for what's already been said. If not, feel free to go back and listen to the messages again. But here we are in part 8. We're in verse 26 today. We won't get any further than that. I wasn't really sure how far we would get today. Um, so we're going to look at verse 26, and then next week we'll look at 27 through the end of the chapter as a capstone to this uh, chapter 1, and then we'll go into chapter 2 and explore that in greater detail. So God has created the living creatures, the land creatures rather, here on day 6, the cattle, which would include all of the domesticated livestock, things you would commonly find on a farm. He created the creeping things. The worms and the insects and the small animals and mammals that run around our world. And then the beasts of the field, which would include everything else. And so everything up to this point that God has made is simply a prelude to what God is going to do here in this final act of creation. The creation of the human race is God's central objective in His creative purpose. Now... His purpose is to be glorified and to be recognized through His creation. But mankind, the human race, is the object of the created world that we inhabit today. So while creation certainly displays the power and the wisdom of God, and while creation demonstrates the worth and the glory of God, every step of creation up to this point has had one purpose in mind, and that is to create a perfect environment for Adam. So the human race is still the central object of God's creation of the material world, and we know this because the human race is the only part of God's created world that will never perish. Think about that. Everything that God has created is going to perish with the exception of the human race. Mankind will live for eternity either with God in His presence in heaven or without God separated from Him in a literal place called hell. The material world that God created is headed for complete and total destruction realized when the end of time as we know it eventually comes. We would call this the second coming. We would call it the end of the world, the judgment of the world. There's a lot of different ways to explain that. But here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 and 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. John in Revelation, speaking about the end of time, would say in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then Peter would say in Second Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed 
destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the material world that we live in, the universe that we explore around us, is going to come to an end. Mankind will live for eternity, and when Jesus comes back and ends time as we know it, God is going to rebuild heaven and earth, imperishable, just like He did in the Garden of Eden that man will inhabit and enjoy in perfection forever and forever. But the world that we live in now will come to an end. God created mankind to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. The fall changed all of that. And at the end of time, the redeemed will do just that, enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. After creating the living creatures, the land creatures that would dwell on the earth, God completes His creative work with the crown jewel of all creation, which is, which is identified here for us in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, the focus of our message today. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So continuing in our outline on day six, after creating the land creatures, God creates the first man. Now it's fairly subtle in this narrative, but there is a significant change in the creation process that is identified at this point, and it is expressed in three ways. So the creation of man, letter A, is personal. Verse 26 begins with a very familiar phrase, Then God said. Every time we read that phrase in the creative narrative, in the the creation narrative, there is some aspect of creation that is going to follow. It's the same phrase that is used repeatedly throughout Genesis 1. But suddenly there is a major shift in the language. For example, up to this point, every occurrence of then God said had been followed by the words, let there be, found in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 14. Let the earth bring forth, found in verse 11 and verse 24. Then let the waters abound in verse 20. And then let the waters be gathered together in verse 9. Always the language of God said, and then it was done. Those expressions are somewhat impersonal in the sense that they are mandates issued to no one in particular other than God just decreeing or God just declaring this is what he's going to do. But here the language is very different. The familiar phrase of and God said is followed by the usage of these two personal pronouns, let us make man in our image. This speaks of the creation of Adam in terms that are uniquely personal. It's the only aspect of creation that can be connected to God at the same level of intimacy or the same act of personal involvement by God. Now, as we go back 
to the very first day when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was enveloped in darkness, and the earth was surrounded by great depths of water, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering or moving over the face of the earth. There is a sense of intimacy in what is going to take place on earth as we compare that to what takes place in the universe. But here, after all the other, after all other entities of creation are completed, we see the introduction of these personal pronouns where God says, let us make man in our image. This phrasing establishes a personal relationship between God and man that does not exist in any other part of this creation narrative. He has no personal relationship with light or with the water or with the luminaries or with the earth itself, not with the vegetation or even with the living creatures that he has created in the same way that he does with humanity. All of these things are created by God through his command and they began to exist because he ordered them to But there's no hint of intimacy between God and what it is He has actually created. God's relationship with with humanity is unique in all of creation, and Scripture vividly portrays this uniqueness as we would see in Genesis 2-7, and we will eventually explore. It says here in 2-7, And the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And man became a living being. There's something uniquely intimate and personal in what God did in the act of creating Adam and the human race communicated to us through this very simple explanation. It is only to man that God's promises are made. God's intervention is made for mankind. And God's eventual offer of salvation is only made for mankind. No other aspect of creation enjoys the same intimate, personal connection with God. So the creation of man is very personal. Let it be, it is also unique. Verse 26a, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So this is perhaps one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture, that man is created in the image of God, created in his likeness. Now before we explore that in particular, we're going to examine the usage of these personal pronouns, us and our. (laughs) So... There are several suggestions that have been made in how this could be or perhaps should be understood, and we're not going to go through these in great detail because we could spend the remainder of our hour exploring those and sifting through what that means and why these aren't so, etc., etc. So the first way this could be understood is that it is very simply a reference to polytheism. Now that objection, or that possibility is ridiculous in the context of the entirety of chapter 1 where God said and then it is so, but it is also ridiculous in the entirety of scripture where there is but one God and God denounces all of man's fabricated little g-gods 
that have been crafted or woven or invented in some way, shape, or form. The second option or possibility is that God is addressing the heavens and the earth. He's speaking to that which He has already created. Well, this is contradicted by verse 27 that we'll look at next time, where it very specifically says that God has created man. Additionally, the heavens and the earth are products of creation and have no creative power in themselves. Thirdly, it is suggested that this is a divine address to a heavenly court of angels. Now the problem with that is nowhere are we told anywhere in Scripture when God created the heavenly host and there is no indication that God is speaking to a heavenly host anywhere in chapter 1 or in chapter 2. So we're also told that man is created in the image of God, not in the image of angels or not according to any kind of angelic host. There are some other very, very minor suggestions that are also a part of this group of possibilities. They're really not worth mentioning, so I won't. The fourth option is the one that we can only really conclude, and that is that this is a divine dialogue between the Godhead. Now, this gets to be very, very difficult, because after all, how do you explain the Trinity? How do you explain that God is one, yet has chosen to communicate Himself in three distinct persons? Well, we can drive ourselves nuts thinking about that, and we'll we'll kind of summarize that a little bit later, and I don't want to get bogged down in this in particular right here, right now. But this divine dialogue within the Godhead is the only logical, and it is the only scriptural conclusion that can be made. Now, some will object to this because a doctrine of the Trinity would not be understood by the earliest of hearers, if we remember that it is likely that Moses has written this as during the time of the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites would have no context of a Godhead or of a Trinity based upon their experience in Egypt or earlier. They would only conclude that God is polytheistic. And that's clearly not what Scripture teaches, and that is not the intent that Moses has here. So some object because the, the Trinity would not be understood by the original audience. They also object to this conclusion because there is not a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity throughout the Old Testament. Now, it is hinted at, especially as you read through the Psalms, it is hinted at when there is the promise of a coming Messiah, it is hinted at with a continual statement of the Spirit of God, but it isn't fully developed, and so some object to this being a divine dialogue because of those reasons. Now, while there is some truth in those objections, there's really no other way that we can understand the usage of these personal pronouns other than God is speaking in the context of the Godhead and He is alluding to the fact that He and the Son and the Spirit are jointly involved in the act of creation. Now, there's a hint of the Godhead all throughout chapter 1, and I mentioned this in the very first message. The usage of the word Elohim for God occurs in 21 of the first 25 verses 
in chapter 1, and every time the word Elohim is used as a reference for the name of God, it is used in its plural form. We also see in verse 2, as I've already mentioned, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So there's already a hint into a plurality within the Godhead, even though it isn't developed here in Genesis and not fully developed in the Old Testament in general, but that is not a reason to discount the fact that there is this dialogue that is taking place amongst the Godhead. So what we can conclude is that this is a very clear declaration that there is a Godhead, although not fully understood, and although not fully developed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. So what it means is this. Excuse me, the question is, what does it mean then to be created in the image of God and in His likeness? Now the answer to that question really has two components to it, and they fit together very, very nicely. What does it mean to be created in the image or in the likeness of God? Well, how much time do you have, and how much detail do you want to really get into? Well, I'm going to answer that question for you. (laughs) We've got the next 25 minutes or so to really flesh that out. So this statement has historically plagued commentators, both ancient and modern, and there are volumes of books that have been written on the subject, and there's great disagreement about what it actually means. So we're going to explore what it means Most likely, understanding that we cannot flesh this out in completeness because Scripture does not flesh this out in completeness. So these two words, image and likeness, are used synonymously even though they are different words in the Hebrew language. So when it's used here, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, It's a way of emphasizing something that is being said. So it's called parallelism within Hebrew writing. And it's a way of emphasizing something very, very important. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Having the image or the likeness of God in the simplest terms means that we are made to resemble God. Now, there's a lot that that does not mean. And we're not going to really get into a lot of detail about that. It does not mean that we are omnipotent or omnipresent or omniscient, nor will we ever become those things. Only God is. It does not mean that we have been eternal. What it means is we have been made to resemble God. Adam did not resemble God Physically, in the sense of having flesh and blood, because Scripture says that God is spirit. John 4, 24, Jesus says God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him, must worship in spirit and truth. Therefore, God exists without a body. Now, you and I did not exist without a body prior to our being born. And we'll look at this in a little bit more detail. God exists without a body, so the image of God refers to the non-material part of humanity. 
Those things that we cannot touch, those things that we cannot see. This likeness of God is what sets human beings apart from the animal kingdom. It's what makes us suitable for the dominion that God intended for us to have over the earth that we'll look at in just a few moments. And it also enables us to commune or to fellowship with God. Something that is incredibly unique about the human race and no other aspect of creation can do. So there's three ways that we resemble God. Letter I... We resemble God mentally. Now, we do not have the mind of God. We do not have the capacity of mental, of mental acuity like God. It doesn't mean that our mind is just like God's, but it resembles God. And it does so in this sense. Humanity was created with a rational, volitional agent. In other words, human beings can reason and can then choose. It is a reflection of God's intellect and God's freedom. Now, while animals can make choices and have what some call reasoning, they are programmed by God to do what they do innately apart from this reasoning or apart from this ability to choose. And we looked at this in great brevity. For example, we looked at, um, I just lost the word, it was um, uh, an Arctic Arctic turn, which would travel from the North Pole to the South Pole and back every year. Why did it do that? It was programmed to do that. Could it not have found suitable grounds to do what it could have done? Yeah, it could have done that. But it doesn't have the capacity to do differently from what has been programmed by God to do. Now, some animals are very smart, and they do possess problem-solving skills, but they will also do what defies reason or common intellect. For example, sheep will follow each other off the face of a cliff and plummet to their death. The wildebeest will jump into crocodile-infested waters because they're programmed to get to the other side to find ground and to eventually mate, and they will do that to their own demise. My dog will instinctively plop down on the ground on the smelliest object that it can find and roll around on it because that's what it's programmed to do. There's no amount of reasoning that my loving, gentle, amazing dog possesses that will ever change it from doing that. It doesn't go, you know, if I do this, I'm going to smell bad and I'm going to have to get a bath, which I don't like. Therefore, I'm not going to do that. My dog doesn't do that. Doesn't have the capacity to do that. Animals are merely creatures of instinct. Yet humanity resembles God mentally because we have this aspect of rational, volitional choosing. Secondly, letter I.I., we resemble God morally. We are not holy like God. We are not righteous like God. But humanity was created in righteousness and perfect innocence which is a reflection of God's holiness. When God completed creation, He will say at the end of this chapter, and it was all very good. No deficiency, no defect, not lacking in anything. 
So our conscience or our moral compass that you and I possess today is a remnant of that original state. Now, can that remnant be altered? It absolutely can. Can that moral compass be eroded into sin? It absolutely can. And this is where we see amongst the human race attributes that are reflective of the animal kingdom being li- being lived out because, hey, it's the survival of the fittest. i got to get what I can because if I don't, I won't survive and I've got to provide even if that means doing something evil to somebody else. But whenever someone withdraws from evil or praises good behavior or feels guilty, it just confirms... The fact that we are made in God's own image and there is a remnant of that morality somewhere back in the depth of our conscience, that which we cannot see, that which we cannot touch. Animals possess no morality. They are simply creatures of instinct. For example, when a male lion overtakes a pride, the first thing that male lion will do is it will maul to death every cub in that pride and by doing so, it will force the females to become ready to to create, and he can then propagate his own gene amongst that pride, and he will kill all the cubs. It's a horrible thing to see. In fact, some 1,500 different species have been cataloged as eating their own species for their own survival. In fact, it is estimated that in some aquatic ecosystems, some 90% of the species exercise cannibalism as a way of surviving. So there is no morality in the animal kingdom as you and I would understand it. They simply do what they are programmed to do. The third way that we resemble God is we resemble God spiritually. does not mean that we have His righteousness, His holiness, or not, are not worthy of worship, don't have His glory, not, any, not anything like that. But we resemble God spiritually. Before the fall, man possessed a perfect spiritual nature with the capacity to know God personally. In fact, we'll learn in Genesis 2 that man, excuse me, Genesis 3, that man fellowshiped with God regularly in the garden. God is eternal and has always been, and man's spirit is created to live forever and will experience a portion of eternity when this physical life is over. The animal kingdom possesses no such spirit. When they die, they simply cease to exist. This spiritual, the spirituality that we possess That spirit with which we have been created is what makes us most unique amongst all of creation and probably highlights the epitome of what it means to be created in the image of God. We possess a spiritual capacity to know God and to commune with Him even while in the limitation of this physical body. Part of being made in God's image is that Adam had the capacity to make free choices. Although Adam and Eve were given a righteous nature, they made an evil choice to rebel against God. 
In doing so, they marred the image of God within themselves and passed that damaged likeness on to all of their descendants. This is what is called the doctrine of original sin. When you and I were born into this world, our spiritual state was corrupted and capable of communing with God apart from some act of God re-enabling us to know Him spiritually. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, today we still bear the image of God But we also bear the scar of sin mentally, morally, and spiritually. So when we look at the human race collectively, we don't see very much resemblance of God, do we? It's... It's amazing the level of atrocity that we are made aware of with each passing year and even month that man commits against mankind because of the scar that exists within the image with which we have been created, that image of God with which we have been created. Our salvation is a call to restore that which was lost due to the fall. For example, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, 23 and 24, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. We are to put on the new man, the new mentality, which has been recreated in the spiritual likeness of God in the righteousness of holiness and of truth. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you, become, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Apart from a recreation of our spirit, which died in the fall of man and causes us in that death to be separated from God and capable of knowing Him or fellowshipping with Him, we are recreated spiritually to know Him and to more properly reflect Him in the lives that we live on this earth reflected spiritually volitionally, mentally, morally, in every aspect, in this new creation that we have been created in spiritually, we reflect that which harkens back to man's existence prior to the fall. Our likeness to God mentally, morally, and spiritually is what separates us from the animal kingdom. We have the capacity to know Him, to commune with Him or to fellowship with Him and to reflect Him in this life which is unique and all that God has 
created. Now we can look at the created world and we can see God's wisdom and we can see God's power and we can see God's glory in those things. But those things do not fellowship with God in the same sense that you and I are created so that we can fellowship with God. The image of God can be summed up by the one word, personhood. We are persons. Our lives involve relationships. We're capable of fellowship. We're capable of loving other people in a God-like sense. We understand communion. We have an amazing capacity for language. We have conversations. We know what it is to share thoughts, to convey and discern attitudes, to give and take friendship, to perceive a sense of brotherhood, to communicate ideas, and to participate in experiences with others. There is nothing in the animal kingdom that can do those things in the same sense as humanity can. So in that way, we are created very, very personally, very, very uniquely to commune with God and for fellowship with God. And then lastly, let us see, the creation of man is for dominion. The last part of verse 26 says, And let them, plural, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the plural use of them is a prelude to what's going to happen to be explained to us in, in Genesis chapter 2. It's also expanded upon in verse 27 with the creation of male-female. And then this dominion is then passed down to all of humanity that we are to share in the dominion over the earth. So one of the chief purposes of man is to rule over what God has created. As God rules over the universe He created, He's delegated to mankind to rule over the earth as the preeminent being on the earth. It is for us, and it is to be governed by us. We see this responsibility fleshed out a little bit in Genesis chapter 2 in some detail where God gives to Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. Up until this point, everything that God created, He Himself named. He named the light. He named the darkness. He named the evening. He named the seas. He named the heaven. He named the earth. And after all of the created land creatures are made, God gives to Adam the responsibility to name all of those creatures, delegating dominion over these beasts, over these creeping things, over all of the creatures on the earth. Secondly, Adam also was given the responsibility of taking care of the garden, and he exercised his dominion that way by taking care of what needed to be taken care of in the Garden of Eden. Now, this was a fairly easy and pleasant assignment for Adam. It was likely one of great joy because it took place in a sweatless, weedless, curse-free environment. It was probably a pleasure to walk through the garden and to say, wow, that looks beautiful, and to eat of that. And it was probably beautiful to look at those things and to pick the flowers and fluff them up, whatever was God, whatever was Adam had to do in the garden to take care of it. Prior to the fall, the responsibility to exercise dominion over the created world was quite easy. It was quite pleasant. And all of that would change 
in an instant after the fall. The image of God and man scarred by sin, the mental, moral, and spiritual likeness would soon resemble very little of God. As we see very quickly in Genesis, the impact of sin was felt with tremendous atrocities being committed even within Adam's own family. Eve deceiving her husband, the children deceiving the father, the children, one child killing another. But God, having created man with a unique personal intimacy, would provide a way of restoration through the sacrifice of His one and only Son with the promise and the confident hope and a recreation of what was lost through the fall of man. We cannot envision what an experience, what a life within the Garden of Eden would even be like because our world is dominated by the reality of the curse of the fall. Our lives are dominated by the scarred image of man being lived out in a very hostile and in a very evil world. And this passage really serves to remind us that in spite of that, God created humanity, each of us, personally, with a unique, hands-on approach, with great care, with great intention, followed by great promise. And that paradise was lost. But not forever. It has been regained And you and I will one day enjoy that again. It often saddens me when I hear people say things like, well, if God is so good, then why is there so much evil in the world? Well, you know, that really terribly horrific thing happened. Well, God had a plan. I just don't think we really understand the impact of the fall that is being lived out around us day by day, moment by moment. It was not God's plan that mankind ever be separated from Him, but He allowed it. It was never God's plan that man would commit atrocities against one another, but God allowed it. It was never God's plan that mankind would be separated from Him, dead to Him, but He allowed it. God's purpose, as we see at the end of 131, is to prepare a perfect environment for Adam to live in and enjoy and to commune with God in forever. But God in His omniscience knew that wasn't going to happen. And even before there was a need, God already had prepared a way to provide for us what was lost through the fall. Well, there's a lot ahead, and there's a lot that we've already looked at. But one thing that we can do, apart regardless of where we find ourselves today, is we can give thanks. We can give thanks because God is great and nothing and no one will ever ever change that reality and as we think about what God has done thus far in creation how could we not say you are great 
and I give you thanks. Would you pray with me, please?